Hello and welcome to Authors at a Glance. This is your host, Shawnee, and with me, as always, is my great co-host, Bridget. How you doing, Bridget? I am doing so great. Today, we are interviewing romance author Evie Dunmore. She's the author of such romance books as... Bringing Down the Duke, her debut novel. And A Rogue of One's Own, the second book in the series, just released. You guys, Evie was a goddamn delight. We had so much fun reading her book this season on the podcast. And Evie and her publisher are kind enough to give away a copy of A Rogue of One's Own to one of our dear listeners. So this giveaway will close on Saturday, October 10th. You can enter on our website at romanceataglance.com forward slash Evie-Dunmore or head to Instagram, romance at a glance, and click the link in our bio. You guys, this is a super easy one to enter. You just have to sign a quick Google form and bam, you are entered to a chance to get a free copy of A Rogue of One's Own. Romance besties, listen, I have to just say this before we get into this interview because, oh my God. It's got to be set. Evie Dunmore, smoke show. Like, no she, lie, no joke, hand over my firstborn child. She is so hot. Hot as sin. Totally a sin. She is a snack and a half. She's gorgeous. Honestly, she is a stunning person. Yeah. Like, she probably rolls She's out of bed so stunning. Beautiful. <laughs> So beautiful. And me and Shani showed up on this Google Hangout, you guys. We were ready. We had our questions. We were excited. We liked her book a lot. We were really excited to talk to her. The interview was great. I'm so excited to, you know, for you guys to hear her thoughtful answers. Uh, and she turned on her camera and I was like, oh, what it is. I was like, <laughs> I should have put hey, bye, on bye. pants today. Uh, bye, bye. Yeah, Shawnee goes, hold on, Bridget, I got to turn my camera off. I don't have pants on. <laughs> Phone we are setting up. So you guys... Despite our less than groomed appearances. Because here in Los Angeles, we haven't left the house in fucking forever. And uh, despite her astoundingly beautiful appearance, uh, we had a great time. We had a great, great time. We had a great time. She even asked us how we got together. So if you guys have yet to hear the story of how Shawnee and I started this podcast, make sure you stick around till the end. Yeah, she had, she had such great energy and like... I could talk to her about so many different things other than romance. That's how I felt after the interview. Like, yeah. And when we get to Berlin, we're going to be going for cocktails. Oh, yeah. When I go to Berlin, I'm like, Evie, what's up? Coming over. What's up? Let's take me out. What's up? Cocktails. What are we doing? Take me out. Let's hop on this. Cocktails. These new trains. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, make sure you enter the giveaway and get yourself a copy of A Rogue of One's Own. And without further ado, here is our interview with Evie Dunmore. Romance at a glance. Uh huh. Romance at a glance. What you say now? Romance at a glance. Go ahead, yeah. Hi, Evie. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Bridget. This is my co-host Shawnee. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Uh, we are super, Hello, <laughs> super, super happy to have you talking about historical romance. So, to preface this, Shawnee is a massive fan of historical romances, and I am. Bridget Sherpa through this historical season that we're doing right now. I have picked like all the books and they're all recommended from like our Instagram listeners. Uh, so it's really exciting. All right. Yeah. So we were super excited to find out about your book and choose it for season four. And we had a blast reading it. I know you just said you listened to the podcast, but we had so much fun reading it. Sometimes it could be a little, uh, 
it can be, you know, if there's not a back catalog of work to read through when we're choosing a book, we're like, I don't know, should we choose it or not? Because we never read it ahead of time. And we were so pleased by how great your book was. Thank you. I think this was my, my first and only five-star rating book <laughs> this, this entire podcast. So I'm very excited. I was very excited wow. to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you a historical romance fan? Is that your genre or did you just really find a story in that? Definitely a historical romance fan. So I've been reading historical romance for years before I wrote my own. Um, I, I'm not even sure it's possible to write historical romance without actually liking the genre and reading it. Um, so, yep, I'm a fan. <laughs> who, who are some of your go-to historical authors? Um, Lisa Kleypas works for me almost every time. Um, and I love Joanna Bourne. I, I don't hear her name as often, but I think she's just a brilliant writer. And, you know, I, I love how, how, how she writes in third person point of view, but I'm always right there with her characters because she goes so deep. So that's really awesome. And, um, I also really like Mimi Matthews. So I've, I've discovered her recently because she writes Victorian historicals and they're super well-researched and just so like wholesome. <laughs> so, so th those are um, ones I'd recommend too. Yeah. So wait a minute. When you say wholesome, do you yeah. mean, <laughs> just, let me just clarify. Uh -huh. Does this mean closed door romances? Oh, right. Well, incidentally, they are more closed door, but it's just, there's, what I meant was that there's a warmth, there's a warmth okay. to their stories that just feel like really, I, like, I was about to say eating warm bowl of porridge, but it doesn't sound very romantic, <laughs> does it? So, um, so it's just like really, maybe cozy is a better word. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Like okay. you have like, maybe like a cup of tea, you got a yeah. nice little biscuit, you're dipping it in, yeah. you're in your cozy jams with a nice okay. blanket. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of which, so I want everyone to know that Shawnee woke up extra, extra early today. I'm very proud of her because Evie is in Europe or in Germany, yeah. right? Yes, I am. So due to the time zone difference between LA and Germany... Uh, I want everyone to be very proud of Shawnee and her extra effort. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for, for doing this. Because, you know, I get I get asked to do um, virtual author chats at like 8 p.m. EST. And, and I'm always, usually I'm like, yeah, I can do that. But it's like 2 a.m. here in the morning. Yeah. You know, I can just watch my eyes go smaller and smaller on the screen. <laughs> and I'm, my answers aren't that coherent anymore at some point. So, so I really appreciate that we're doing it this way this time. Thank you. Oh, I, I'm definitely, Bridget is definitely making fun of me because she knows, like, she'll say to me, like, oh, Shawnee, let's meet early. And I'm like, okay, 11 noon. What's, <laughs> and she's like, I have small children. <laughs> Um, but uh, Germany is one of my favorite places. I, I would move to Berlin, actually, in a heartbeat uh, if I could. So that's awesome that you're over there in Germany. Have you been? Have you been to Berlin then? I have. I have. My And my my mom went to, like, all of my aunts went to Berlin at some point in their life in the 70s, 80s. Um, and so it's just, like, a place that's, like, close to my heart. So I went last year, uh, uh -huh. thank God, before all of this happened. Um, and I loved it. I was so in love with the city. I, if somebody said like tomorrow, like, Hey, there's all the resources you need to move to Berlin. I'd be like, deuces. I will see y'all later. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. She liked it. I, it's an awesome city. I yeah. also uh, loved Berlin when I was there. We went, uh, my sister studied abroad there in Germany. And so we went for a few weeks and I've been back a couple of times. I went to the world cup there. Um, so, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm one of those people. I came That's for the you. whole time. We drove around the whole country, went to like five games. It was unbelievable. I loved it so much. It's so fun. All right, but you're not from Germany. You're from, yes. are you from the UK or where are you from? No, I'm German Lebanese. Cause we had seen Scotland somewhere and we were like, okay, we want to know where you're from. And first of all, Highlanders in general, are my catnip. Like, I think they are probably the historical book I've read the most of, um, like growing up. Don't ask me why. <laughs> but so when I saw that, I was like, I'm so intrigued. I need to know more. <laughs> well, you might like my third novel then because the hero is a Highlander. Oh, yes. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> going up to Scotland as well. And I love Scotland. You know, I lived in the UK for four years and uh, I was always up in Scotland because I'm a, like a... Uh, you know, a hobby mountaineer. So um, the highest mountains you can find in Britain are in Scotland. And anyway, it's just an amazing place. It's got a very special magic to it, I think. And um, I've traveled quite a bit, but Scotland is the place where I'd always go back to. It's just so, I don't know, but it's a place that actually looks really good in some, you know, fog and rain and uh, it's just, adds to the experience it's and the people are super friendly and um you know you have the right of way and you can do some wild camping in places and it's just ah, i would have i would have gone this year had it not been for you know covid <laughs> so i poured it all into my third book uh, it, does, it does feel like scotland um like there could be a mystery unraveling around any corner like, it feels like once the fog lifts, like, if, if you saw little elves or fairies, you'd be like, of course. I mean, not even, I wouldn't have to stretch the imagination at all. You're just right around the bend. Like, I feel like anything there is possible. And I also think Scottish and Irish, I, I think it's weird, not weird, but, like, interesting that, like, I don't feel this way about English boys, but Scottish boys or Irish boys, the twinkle in the eye, they all have it. <laughs> old, young, everyone's got the twinkle. And you're like, oh, that mischievous man is going to lead me into some fun. I could just tell. Oh, maybe. <laughs> I've met a few twinkling eyes, but... <laughs> well, the, third, the third book is going to be Hattie's book, right? Yes, it's going to be Hattie's book. Okay, I'm super mm. excited because Hattie, I just thought her... Uh, her outlook and the way she would describe things was so funny in the first book. She was like, yeah, but why would that even happen? Cause she's like so much wealth, but also not a lady. So she gets more freedom. And she, she was a very refreshing character. We enjoyed her. Yeah. She was fun to write. Cause she's totally unlike me. So <laughs> I was like <laughs> digging deep to, to, uh, to, you know, um, put her to life on the page. It was, uh, yeah. I wonder, I wonder how it worked out. I liked her a lot. It was a lot of fun. Um, certainly it was, I think, the the least challenging book to write out of the three. Um, but I also paired her with like the darkest character out of the out of all of them. Ooh. Um, so it's an interesting dynamic between the two. And yeah, I really look forward to sharing them with with readers. 
I'm like very intrigued by this because like I I do love a dark character. Um, we're actually thinking of doing a season of dark romances in general. Oh. Um, but uh, in historical, we were talking about how like on the podcast how um, we I like I like historicals better than contemporary. Mostly because, well, one, I started in historical, so it's like my first love. But two, you can get away with so much more in historical, right? So in contemporary, if the guy was like overbearing, we were like, what's with that? Like that, you know, but in historical, if the guy's overbearing, it's like, well, that was the times. That's just what it was. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Or like <laughs> brooding and this and that. Um, you can like kind of gloss away some of these like character flaws or play with them in a different way because it was a different time. So you get to just accept that these were the times and then enjoy like whatever that is. Um, whereas like in contemporary, there's so much, there's so many social issues that hit you in a different way than they did in, in historical. Well, but they still seem to sell really well. I mean, if you look at 50 shades, I think it's sold 90 million copies by now. So I guess at the end of the day, people aren't too bothered. <laughs> if, you look, if you look at the sales figures that speak for themselves, right? So they do, but everybody calls it like a guilty pleasure. It's not like you can, you don't, people don't feel outwardly proud to say like, oh, I love 50 shades of gray necessarily. <laughs> I mean, some people do. We did like the soundtrack for it, didn't she? And I mean, they get three blockbuster movies out of it and it's still selling. I mean, (laughs) I I totally hear what you're saying. I'm playing a bit of a, you know, like with this right now, because sometimes what people say and then what they buy and actually like is two different things, I feel. Oh, absolutely. Because we just, uh, uh, 365 on Netflix. I don't know if you've watched it. I saw it around and I was like this looks so bad it could be good I'm not sure yet but I, I'm, I'm intrigued at some point but some people said just you know skip the story and and look at the um the mashup of all the sexy bits <laughs> they said so I, I don't know it's, it's... I I skimmed it I skimmed it um because I wanted to watch it with Bridget when I like I kept hearing it online like and it wasn't romance uh, people who were talking about this. This is just regular people on TikTok. Don't ask me why I was on TikTok, but I was. And everybody's like, have you watched 365? Film yourself watching like, you know, the movie or pieces of the movie. Um, and I had no idea it was a romance novel. I just clicked on it and was like, oh, let's see, okay. let's go down this rabbit hole. And very quickly I realized, oh, this is a dark romance. And all of these uh, women and people online love it. And they're not even like romance readers or listeners. It's because everybody likes that bit of, you know, that feeling and nobody wants to admit that they love that that dark kind of menacing romance like this is you know what this is type of feeling um but i will say that the from what i skimmed of it that the movie is is not it's cheesy but it's not as cheesy as you'd think and the actors committed to their roles and i think that's the key that makes it not that bad like not you know what I mean? Because I, th- I think if the actors feel like they're doing a cheesy thing and the actors are terrible, then the whole thing mm-hmm. just becomes one big cheesy mess. But <laughs> I, I do think that it's good enough uh, to like enjoy. And especially like if you're with your homegirl or somebody uh, to watch it, I think you'll like, I think you'll dig it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> you're telling it to me. <laughs> yeah. Do you... Uh- do you feel like there's like have you had any interest in your books to be converted into TV or film 
sense now like the Bridgertons is going to start on Netflix soon uh, and, and we me and Shawnee are always flabbergasted that more authors stuff isn't getting optioned because like you said like 50 shades made a more than a billion dollars you know like Twilight those movies and books made more than a billion dollars I'm like catch on people women women and men love to read and watch romance well um I, I think there's a a practic- there's some practical challenge with um, practical challenges with um, you know optioning historicals, and that is because the production of historicals is just really expensive. And Julia Quinn obviously has a massive fan base, and she's got a long backlist. So I think there was a you know a, if I were a TV producer or a movie producer, I could look at the figures and say, well, that, that makes sense to try that, you know. But if you have like unknown authors or authors with a smaller following, which is the case in historicals, then you know you have to put in a lot of effort for uh, the costumes and the background and teaching people the dances and the manners and then it becomes a massive cost outlay and you don't know if anyone's going to watch it or if they just prefer to rewatch Pride and Prejudice or the new Emma. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a risk um, but of course I'd be absolutely thrilled if somebody wanted to put the early suffrage movement mashed up with some romance onto TV. Um, so <laughs> I'd yeah I'd, I'd love that but um, actually, at the moment, I'm just really happy with how the books are going. So, how did you? How did you? Uh, did you have an agent ahead of time and then work with them to sell the book, or did you just send it out to publishers? How did you get to your publisher? Um, no, well, so if you apply to one of the big five uh, publishing houses, you need an author because they uh, an, an agent. Sorry, an agent. It's not even. It's not even two a.m. and I'm already not talking straight. <laughs> um, so you need an agent if you want to get um, to one of the big publishers um, and you want to have a, um, a, a trade paperback or mass market um, version of your book. Because I think they only accept unagented manuscripts for digital and. So what I did is I wrote Duke and I finished it. Then I looked at it and decided I'm going to give this a shot. And then I started to look for an agent. And after I found the agent, she sold um, a three-book deal to Berkeley. So that's how it went. That's amazing. But you're doing four books or are you only doing three? No, um, it started out with three um, and, and then the first book did well. So Berkeley said, we want to buy more books. So now, now I can write four for the series and a fifth one, which might be the beginning of a new series or a standalone or a fifth one in the series that is currently, you know, on. We will see. Cool. So, Congratulations. That's amazing. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. So, so then my question is, um, when you first, uh, were doing the series or when you first did the first book, did you already know what was going to happen, like up to a certain amount of books or like, how does that work for you? Mm, so I, when I did the first book, I, I had a vague idea for Lucy's and Tristan's story because well, as, I was, as I was writing the first book, I thought the next character I would like to write about was Hattie. Um, but then Tristan Valentine popped up at the ball and bringing down the Duke. And I thought, actually, I think Lucy is going to have her story next. Uh, so, so, so I didn't really know what was happening. It came from Tristan's appearance in the first book. I got a plot idea for the second book. And then as I was writing the second, Hattie's love interest popped up. So I got a vague idea for the third book. 
So I'm basically just playing it by ear as I read. <laughs> <laughs> what I always had in mind was that the, the theme across the books, be it three or four, was that all the girls in their own way were going to work towards amending the Married Women's Property Act because they are suffragists and um, amending that act was like one of the pro uh, main priorities in, in the 1880s. Yeah. So that's the, the thing that ties the books together. Yeah, I, I will... Really Okay. I really liked, because Shawnee hasn't read the second book, but I, I got an ARC of it and read it. And I won't spoil it for everyone since you guys should all go buy it. But uh, I really liked the way that you resolved Lucy and Tristan because I was very worried because I think a lot of authors would have been tempted to throw aside her suffragette um, cares for the sake of a happy ending, like a quote unquote traditional happy ending. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all I'll say. I won't spoil it. But uh, I was very, very pleased when I got to the end of the book that it did not happen that way. Thanks. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I considered it for a moment. Um, and Lucy was like, no, not <laughs> for me. So I thought, all oh, right, <laughs> I leave it alone. <laughs> I think it's something else. Um, <laughs> she was very insistent. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting to me. Um, the fact that that you made suffragettes so um, appealing <laughs> is, it to me, like a feat in itself. Um, because Bridget and I have read books that have a lot of uh, social issues in them, and they don't they don't work really well in romance, um, mostly because you're reading to escape. And mm -hmm. so when you have a lot of social issues in your book, it's like, you're like, I don't want to deal with that. Yes, I know that exists, but between, between these pages, I want to walk into like, you know, someplace else where, you know, women are not oppressed. <laughs> and we're not like, you know, like for me, I don't, <clears throat> I don't like to read things that have like um, slaves in it or former slaves or like, um, you know, stuff like that. So um, for me, when I first saw that it was suffragettes, I was a little bit like, uh-oh. <laughs> and the fact that it, it was done so well. And outside of the podcast, I think I've had the most amount of conversations with uh, people about your book um, because they'll listen to the episode and then we're talking, we're talking suffragettes. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this book has like fostered so much conversation uh, for me. Um, so like just well done on that. Like it was, uh, it was cool that it was, um, there was a social issue, but it wasn't something that became like, um, for me, like a preachy thing. It was really something that enhanced the story. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And so I'm, I'm wondering, okay, so I guess maybe pre-COVID, uh, but how do you actually uh, write in terms of like, do you write at home? Um, do you go out? Do you, can you write amongst people? Are you um, like an introvert who's like always, <laughs> who like writes in like a nook in your house? Do you have like a set time every day that you write? We're always very interested in seeing how people like kind of get their thoughts and get, and get to writing. Well, I'm very introverted. So I tend to sit in a nook <laughs> and not move much. And, um, yeah, so, um, but, but um, in general, I think the process for the, the books was different because the first book I wrote um, a bit in my own time at first. And uh, 
you know, I, I was still coming to grips with writing uh, for, you know, hours at a time. So sometimes I just go out to a coffee shop here in Berlin and just sit and, and write. And um, I liked that there was a bit of buzz in the background. For the second book, it was a massive struggle because it was a second book and second book syndrome is real. At least it was for me. So um, I actually came to a point where I had to go to my mom's place <laughs> and, uh, you know, take a week at a time at her place and just sit there and write. And she just put food next to my laptop three times a day and was like, keep going, keep going. I'm like, OK. <laughs> um, so, so that was the, the second book process. Um, and the third one, well, because there was COVID, um, that, that was very interesting. Um, so I, you know, I was with my partner during the lockdown, of course, and um, there's two kids, small ones. So um, navigating around that during the lockdown was very interesting, too. Um, so I was basically hiding and he kept, you know, my back free. <laughs> so it was uh, different processes and as for you know fixed times mm, no I get up and then I start um, but I'm a night owl so you'll probably find me writing at like 1am in the morning rather than at 9am in the morning yeah that's Shani that's so I, I I call those I, Go ahead. Oh, okay. I was so, just going to say, I wake up in the morning and I've gotten all this like cool stuff from Shani. And then I like weed through it while she's asleep and she gets, wakes up and has like 40 different messages for me. What about this? What about this? What about this? Well, I have this theory that like the night is empath hours. So people who are like energy sensitive, um, the whole world goes to sleep yeah. and now you can breathe. Your energy yeah. can like, can just Sorry. permeate the space and you just fly. I find like in the middle of the night, I just fly through things that would have taken me three and four times as long in the day to do. Um, I don't know if that's like how you feel, but that's just how, that's just how it works for me. No, I, I very much feel like that. I never thought about it in terms of, you know, being um, ener energy sensitive, but of course, as an introvert, you're super energy sensitive, you know, when it comes to other people being around you and being buzzy and wanting stuff and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and um, yeah, at night, everything's quiet and calm and um, my brain is just more alert. It's just how it works. I feel like a lot of night writers are actually night owls compared to non-writers from what I've seen. Yeah. Do you, um, like, did you have another profession and then now you were writing full time? How, like, how did that transition happen? Yeah, I had another profession. I, I still have it, though it's a bit dormant at the moment because I'm focusing on three different books at the same time and there's COVID. So um, <laughs> not much going on on that front at the moment. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a business consultant um, with a focus on automotive. So Absolutely nothing to do with romance, but <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I work for myself and that's how I managed to write the first book. You know, I was, I was working for years and years, just head down working and um, reading romance during my commutes to unwind. And when Annabelle and Sebastian from Bringing Down the Dew came to me and like kept buzzing around in my head, one day I decided... You've worked for so many years without taking a break. You're going to give these two lovebirds a shot now. And so I started to, um, you know, um, phase out the, the consulting a bit, did a writing course at the same time, and then started writing. And then 
for the last three or four months of Duke, I stopped taking projects altogether and just finished the story. That's awesome. awesome. So I, I work for myself also consulting and, and writing and doing stuff. So, uh, it is a really nice flexibility to be like, I'm just not going to take any clients this month. And I also have two small children, uh, who are about this fall will turn three and one. And so with COVID, I was like, I'm just not going to take any real clients for the summer because we may never leave our houses in LA ever again. So, um, so it has been a really nice flexibility. That is for sure. So I completely, I do, you know what I miss though, is that commute time that you're talking about. When I lived in Chicago, I would read usually romance or sci-fi and fantasy. And I had about 30 minutes to an hour, both directions every day. Mm -hmm. And like, during lunch, I would read like, and I had, it was like such a nice transition. And that's one thing that's a little tougher, obviously with kids in general, but uh, working from home, I don't get that like, oh, let me just like read for 30, 40 minutes. Cause then that'll turn into three hours. <laughs> and then I just don't do anything. How do you, I mean, I don't understand how you can read for 30 minutes. Like my, the way my brain works is that like, as soon as I pick up that book, I'm in it for for hours and hours. It may feel like 30 minutes and then I'll look at the clock and like four hours has gone by or I'm listening to the audio. I lay down, listen to it and I'm in it and I'm thinking like, oh, I've only been here for 20 minutes and it's definitely been two hours. So <laughs> like they, like 30 minutes to me would feel like, like kind of like in toddler time. Like 30 minutes is like, why are you interrupting me? I just like, this is what, I just only read two pages. What? Oh wait, no, I didn't. That was 30 minutes. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It just my brain registers that time so differently. It's just because you. It's just because like you get to your bus stop and you're like, oh, that's my stop. And you close your book <laughs> and you walk into work. You it's just you just get used to it. Because I agree. Now you know that I like to just crush a whole book in a sitting. Like I'm like, why? I don't need to eat. I have this book to read. Thank you. Um, but yeah, it it you just get used to it. Like the and and you have a natural endpoint, which is like the train arrives, the bus arrives, and now you're at work and you have to go work because that's what you're don't, doing. Don't you, feel grumpy, don't you feel grumpy when you get pulled out of the story? If it's a mm -hmm. good thing. Oh yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like, yeah. I don't know if you do this or used to do this, obviously pre COVID, but I would get off the train or bus and then I would stand on the platform. Like if I'm in a really good scene or finishing a chapter and I'm just standing there finishing my chapter or I'm walking and reading down the street. Yeah. Like, Yeah. <laughs> I get um like I love how you're like a little bit grumpy and I'm like no I hit a rage point like if somebody if somebody comes and inter like interrupts me while I'm in a deep like any sort of deep train of thought it doesn't have to be even reading I can be working at the computer or doing something else uh, I later found that this is actually a thing this is like this is a sensory issue for uh, it's a hyperfocus it's a hyperfocus so yeah, like hyperfocus uh, you're going to yeah. And when I'm in hyperfocus, if anybody interrupts me, I will uh, kill their firstborn child. Like it's it, it's <laughs> it's like an intense rage. It's not just like a oh, like come on. It's like what do you want? <laughs> no, no, no. My mom, my mom used to punish me when I was a kid by taking my books away when I was in the middle of a book because she knew 
that was the one thing that would really get to me. And I was, I was so hyper-focused as a child on reading that I'd take the book to dinner with me and try to read while I was eating and stuff like that. It was really extreme. There's pictures of me at birthday parties for kids where disturbed parents took pictures of me sitting in the middle of kids going like, yay, and Joel sitting there reading a book she hadn't seen on her friend's bookshelf before. So it was, it was, it was a bit abnormal. And um, so my mom would actually snatch my box and said, like, no more reading time. And I was, yeah, rage is the right word. <laughs> it, was, it was so, you know, um, it's like you get, it's like you're on a journey, you're in the middle of it. And then it's just, I don't know, your whole world gets yeah. taken away. <laughs> it's, uh, it feels like yeah. you're dangling on the edge of the cliff with no relief and then you're just left there, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, you, know, when you're, you know, when you're grown up and you've got like competing, um, uh, how do you say, uh, bids for your attention, like your family or work, then you need to, oh, I, I needed to learn to regulate that. But I totally remember the feeling. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think I, think my, I think my mom will be happy to hear that she was not the only mom who had to punish her children by stealing <laughs> books. And we had a firm no books at the table and all me, my brother and sister would try to be reading under the table, but like <laughs> eating, like, 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 oh no, we're not reading. We're just eating. And she'd be like books and everyone had to <laughs> give away their books. And it was like, and then you'd find out that like, if I was reading a book with my dad, for instance, he'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to take the book so you don't stay up late and read it with a flashlight. And Ugh. then the next day you'd find it and he had already read through another third and the betrayal. Mm. <laughs> so, the cut was so deep. Oh my God. I just, so found out for, okay. I just found out for my mom that like, cause Bridget knows I tell a lot of stories on the podcast, but my mom was strict. Okay. And she was definitely very heavy handed. Um, and I always said to her, like, spankings never worked for me. You should like, you should have just took my books. That would have really killed me, you know? And she told me as an adult very recently, she's like, I didn't take your books because you love them so much. She's like, I didn't want you to like have like this kind of uh, punishment feeling when it came to reading. So she's like, I never took them. And I was like, you know what? As many complaints as I have, thank you. Thank you, mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm wondering like um when you're building your character um mm -hmm. how do you go about building like a protagonist a protagonist that can like can be fallen in love with and do you are you pulling from real life are you pulling from movies books like what is uh where are you finding your thoughts ideas or is it just like a download like you just get it just comes to you. Yeah, I think I think I pulled it mainly from my subconsciousness. I would say because I um, I just felt the characters. I just yeah, they were they were in my head, and um, I didn't really know where they came from. Uh, so there must have been bits bits of me. <laughs> uh, you know, I I'm not saying I'm like them, but. Um, um, which character which character do you think you are the most like probably a little bit like sebastian <laughs> <laughs> that's such a good answer <laughs> well you know it's uh, he's he's not very good at communicating emotions and a bit you know type a and introverted and so he's he goes about it all very logically and then 
then it doesn't work. <laughs> you can't deal. So I think I think that reminds me of me sometimes. Yes, um, I'm not a duke though. <laughs> be nice, but exactly. no. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, the reason I asked you specifically if you downloaded because as we're talking, I'm like uh, a lot of the things you say remind me of just empathic things, right? So like. One of the things as for me, like I'm an empath, a lot of ideas or things you get are just like these, these downloads to your brain. You don't, Mm -hmm. you can't attribute them to anything specifically. It's just like you get it and then it's there. And then, um, I don't know if this happens for you, but it will sit at the forefront of your brain until you get it on paper or until like you, you just have to physically get it off your brain (laughs) in order to have peace. (laughs) Ah, absolutely. So one of the reasons why I started to dial back on my day job was because I'd be writing client emails or a PowerPoint presentation and the characters would really start up and I had to, just to be physically comfortable, I had to start writing down the dialogues that I was hearing and or, or describe what I was seeing. And it wasn't, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't very professional. So I was like, okay, I, I have to, I have to make some choices here. And, um, as you say, it was like a physical sensation of needing to get it out because they were like, well, it sounds creepy, but they were kind oh, of scratching yeah. um, at the inside of, of my skin. And um, just, I was so preoccupied that I was also making a terrible, you know, a terrible partner or friend because I'd be at the table with people and just zone out and and focus on what was going on inside my head. So it, it was very good to ha- have the opportunity to actually have an outlet because I think a lot of people want to write and have these sort of you know um, urges and then don't find a way of making space for that or don't allow themselves to make space for that and it's probably very healthy to be able to let it out absolutely (laughs) what I have a question because because all of obviously your characters are different the main uh, female protagonist what do you feel like when you're writing the sex scenes, it's uh, it comes with the character and the download, or do you feel like it's some, like you said, a, like a small piece of you that's like you know a thought that maybe you'd never want to explore in your real life, but you're like, oh, maybe if I was with the Duke and he pushed me into a dark corner in this in this ballroom, this is what I would say. Like, what? How does that come? Up? No, I would I would say that um. So far, I haven't written anything that that I. That's difficult to say. It's because me and Shani are here for some sex. We're here for some smutty goodness. <laughs> yes, absolutely. we're here for real stories. That's like our main thing. Plus, we want the door to be open so that we can be there yeah. with the couple. Yeah. So, what I can say is, I feel like that my novels are progressively becoming more open or explicit on that front um because it's a learning process for me too as a writer and uh, I think you know um sex can be the place where you're most vulnerable in 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 in, in your daily life as well so you know that could be a place where um where a lot of you know emotions that have nothing to do with it are coming to the surface all of a sudden because you become so you know so open or so vulnerable to something and it's for me, it's similar to when I'm writing the books. These scenes are um, kind of um, delicate scenes to write. And um, I'm still gaining confidence as a writer too. So I have to do two things. You know, I have to be in this vulnerable place to write it. 
And at the same time, I have to completely delete the fact in my head that my editor is going to read this. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, uh, you have to develop a thick skin, at least I do. And, and I feel like I'm, you know, I'm learning this and, and I, I realize, oh, I notice that I'm becoming much more adventurous. So I'm interested in seeing where that's going. Certainly I have a novella on my mind that's going to be nothing like the, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the Tema, <laughs> Duke and Rose. So I, I wonder if I'm going to actually write it, but I'd, I'd like to. Yeah. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> if you guys uh, are wondering because you cannot see her face, she just gave us a very cheeky smile and a, <laughs> a giggle. So that sounds like a novella, right? Uh, up it's, our alley. It's interesting that you say that because, like, I mean, I grew up very prudish in a very prudish, you know, home. And now on the podcast, we talk so openly about sex. But when we first started the podcast, I definitely had to get over this like hurdle of being like, I'm going to talk about sex, fantasies, what we want to see in books, like, like everything that's in my brain, which I feel like is the most vulnerable to tell people about your kinks and, you know, like all those things on a podcast. And I think it was slightly easier because it was a podcast and nobody could see my face um, in the process of talking about these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But after season one, I felt like, like the more you talk about sex, just the more open you get about sex. And then the more people write you about their fantasies and the things they're doing, you're like, oh, I'm not, okay, I'm not the only weirdo. Oh, great, great. We're all in this world, <laughs> you know? So uh, it became yeah. easier. And now we say anal all the time. So <laughs> I think I think that's actually one of the beautiful things about romance as a genre is that it allows people to explore different types of love and types of sex and types of romance, different pairings, different, you know, menages, you know, all kinds of different things, be it in historicals, you know, which it has some separation from your normal life. So it gives you a little bit of protection around something that might be too broad. You wouldn't maybe say in your real life to a friend, oh, I really would want to be whisked into a cloakroom and ravished. But reading a historical, you know, you, you might read it and be like, oh, wait, I do want that or maybe you read it and you're like oh that's wonderful for that character I think it's sexy but I don't want that so I I think that's one of the most like fun things about romance is it allows people to see other things yeah and I think that kind of circles back to what you said in the beginning you know that um, like Shawnee said she likes historicals because people get away with a bad behavior more or what we now would consider bad behavior I think it depends on that what what role literature or books play in your life right do you see it as a a behavioral guide for proper behavior and like, or something that's going to or should be shaping a perfect conduct and the daily life you want? Or do you see it as a place where people go to actually secondhand live through experiences and it's like a cathartic experience and, and like um, a place where you can do things that you wouldn't do in real life, but because you're an adult person, you kind of know the difference. So, and it's still something you'd want to explore and something where you can subconsciously learn about yourself. I mean, I know enough people who through romance novels became um, more in touch with, you know, maybe their desire or um, came up with new ideas and say about Fifty Shades, whatever you want. But I mean, I think for a lot of people, it was like, oh, maybe you should maybe you should try this. And, you know, who knows? maybe they maybe they ended up taking that away from the books with them. And it is now enriched their lives. So who are we to say <laughs> what should be what should be read or written? Um Certainly, as you say, romance can be a good place to explore that. And there's so many subgenres in romance too, you know. If 
if you label it a dark romance, people probably know going in what's what's in there. Um, probably comes down to expectation management, really, right? If you label something really fun and frothy and then <laughs> suddenly turns into, <clears throat> you know, something else, then, then it could be jarring. But I'm personally all for writing everything and then allowing people to go into that if they want. Actually, I, I have a question. I, I have a question about the fun and frothy. Okay. So I don't know if you have the same question, Bridget, but so we're wondering about the cartoon cover of your book <laughs> because like, so we found that there's a lot of more uh, illustrated covers like this in romance now. And we are assuming that maybe it's because it makes the book more accessible to a wider audience or whatever. But we're curious as to what, why specifically you wanted a, like uh, animated cover or illustra- sorry, an illustrated cover versus uh, something else? Well, you know, authors don't really get asked what type of cover they want. <laughs> Especially not if they're like a tiny fish first, showing up. First time the- authors, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. No, we, we get given a cover and um, I was surprised <laughs> when I saw my cover for the first time. <laughs> and um, did you think it was going to have people on it? Like non-character, like real people? Well, no. I thought I was going to get a woman in a beautiful dress, um, you know, and then then it was a blue horse. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to be honest, it really grew on me. I mean, I gradually really fell in love with the covers and I certainly loved the second cover at first glance. You know, I was like, oh, this is perfect because I had gotten so used to it. <clears throat> it wasn't it wasn't strange or different anymore to me. And I could just appreciate the art in it and the colors and how it had picked like such a good scene from the book. Um, but certainly seeing it the first time on a, on a historical for me was um, a, a huge surprise. And I'm sure it, I wasn't the only one who was surprised. And um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one, one thing I will say is that, you know, cause we're on Instagram all the time. And to Shani's point about marketing, the book covers are beautiful. Like you said, the colors pop, the scenes are very fun. And I see a lot of people posting pictures of the book or having it in their stacks because it is such a beautiful, um, it's just such a, I mean, it is beautiful art. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were talking about on the podcast that the one thing that we struggle with, with illustrated covers is to me reading, look, reading that, into that cover, I'm thinking fun, flirty, jaunt. I'm not thinking that it's going to have any weight to it, I guess. And when we read your book, we were pleasantly surprised that it had a real depth and range. And it wasn't, um, not that we don't enjoy a fun, flirty romp, because we do. But we were just surprised that it felt like the cover didn't necessarily match the guts. And it's, it's, it's always fun to find out, like, I mean marketing departments are selling books and they're doing a good job selling your book because you got more books in your book deal. So they're doing their job, but it's always interesting to see how it all pans out. I think it's like, I think it's what she was talking about earlier about managing expectation, right? So like generally the book cover lets you feel, lets you know what you're getting in for. And so right now I'm like, oh, you know what? I've had a heavy week. I want something super, I want a book that's light. I don't want to think too much, you know, that sort of thing. So when you pick up a book thinking that it's going to be light, and then you read Suffragettes, you're like, 
wait a minute, I didn't have the, the mental capacity this week for that specific book. It's just a, a management of expectations, I think, in the book covers uh, yeah. or whatnot. I know, yeah, for sure. And um, I was uh, skeptical going in with that because of the whole expectation management. But what we see is, or what I see is, um, certainly there are people who, you know, don't like it, but the majority of people seem to have enjoyed it. I don't know if the cover... You know, if, I don't know if the book keeps finding readers by word of mouth because people say, don't look at the cover, but the content is kind of fun. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Or if people just keep going for it and actually liking, for, liking it because the majority of people seem to have enjoyed Duke. And um, that, to me, is a proof that it kind of worked. I don't know how, but it did. So... <laughs> Well, I actually, so, I actually like the second book better too. So readers, comes. readers, I have not released this review yet because I was supposed to last week when the book came out, but you guys know me. I am not on top of my reviewing on time except for this podcast. And, uh, I liked it better than book one, which I also I, like. I've heard that from a lot of people actually, though, who, who came back to me with feedback. I mean, you know, they said, I like this better than the first and I already liked the first one. So Again, not sure how it happened, but I'm quite happy that it did. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, um, to, to the credit of, of the uh, illustrated book cover, um, this we definitely talked about in the podcast. When I was a kid, I used to have to sneak romance novels. I was not allowed to read them whatsoever in my um, house. <laughs> um, it was seen as very illicit pornography to read a romance novel. Just FYI. Um, some of them were kind of. But uh, so I used to take... Um, uh, I don't know if you ever did this, but did you ever have to cover your books in school, like your textbooks, um, like paper cover them? Okay, so I used to paper cover my romance novels, and then I'd write Pride and Prejudice, like on the cover of it, you know, or like <laughs> The Great Gatsby, or like you know, or whatever. <laughs> and then I could. My mom never asked me; like, she never was like, "Let me see that book" or whatever. So that was the way I could get away with reading romance novels in front of my mom without her knowing what was going on. Um, and so, like, to the credit of the the illustrated cover, because they look so fun and not you know, not like too much is happening there. Um, you can read them anywhere without feeling ashamed. Some people, like, I didn't like to read them. Like, you know, I wouldn't read them on the bus. I would always cover them because I don't want people to know I was reading romance, like going on the bus to school or that sort of thing. So like, I was very ashamed of it. It was not something I was like out and proud of back then. So like, that would have been a good cover for me at that time. I, I think I read somewhere that when Kindle or when e-readers became a thing, romance novel sales skyrocketed by 800% in the first month. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I believe it. <laughs> so, and that's actually surprising because if you look at older romance novel covers, they were not always the half-naked guy with, with, you know, the lady in the dress. Um, for example, um, the Julie Garwood covers or even old Lisa Claypers covers, they have like a pond and a swan. Or yeah. a, a bunch of flowers. So um, romance novel covers have always had this evolution, I would say. And it seems to be going in cycles, you know, from being completely innocuous and you have no idea what's in there. Okay, so there's flowers. Great. Um, <laughs> maybe they're symbolic for something and I just don't know. But um, and, and then you go and it becomes very sexy. And, and then now it seems to, in some, uh, how do you say, in some genres or subgenres, it seems to cycle back to something less... Um, you know, uh, romantic, obviously romantic. So 
I'm not sure how it works, but it would be really interesting to look at uh, different cycles of romance novel covers over time, I think. It's actually a good yeah. idea. We should write that down, Bridget. I was just thinking, <laughs> write, write that down, Shani. That's a good idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's, I do think it's interesting too about the, the sales of it because I, I find, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what your family thinks, but my family, my mom, my sister, and me, we've always read romance novels. My dad has always known that we've read romance novels. He doesn't read romance novels, but he reads a ton of sci-fi and fantasy and he'll read like Anne Rice. So he reads like, he'll read mysteries. They always in mysteries have a romance. Like it's, it's not a romance novel. It's a mystery, but it is, I mean, like it is a row. It has romance, you know? <laughs> and so we've never had any sort of, uh, I wasn't like Shawnee. I carried my my naked males on the cover of my book and walked down the street with pride. Uh, but I'm always interested to see, like, just your, you know, when you started writing and it became clear that you were writing a romance novel, what did your, like, family and friends think? <clears throat> well, uh, first, I didn't really tell anyone <laughs> uh, that I was writing in the first place, uh, you know, kind of to protect my writing as well. Um, because, you know, so both Germans and Lebanese are very pragmatic people when it comes to jobs. So as a Lebanese person, you can be like a doctor or an engineer and, um, everything beyond that is odd. And, uh, <laughs> I think the Germans are kind of the same, you know, be a doctor or an engineer. Um, so uh, saying that I started to write romance and it's like phasing out my day job for a while was, uh, certainly wouldn't have found a lot of, you know, support. Also, I thought, because um, when I started to tell my mom about it, she was quite excited about it. She said, well, you've been writing since you were seven years old. It's good that you're giving it, you know, a shot now. <laughs> and my grandma was very supportive too. And um, once the book was published, I felt the Lebanese family was supportive too, because now there was a priest and a writer in the family, which is good. <laughs> jackpot, jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um when you so i only listen to audiobooks um bridget reads the actual book and uh it's honestly i've lost the ability to read this is kind of uh, crazy but when i went back to read i think we i don't know season two or something we actually read a physical book and i had just hadn't really picked up a physical book in so long i'm a multitasker of many things and I called Bridget. I was like, Bridget, I can't read. <laughs> like, I, I've been trying to read like the same page for a really long time. Um, and my eyes just wouldn't track like in, in order to be able to like read and enjoy a book like I used to just devouring a book. Um, and so, uh, so that was a thing that we discovered last season when we had to read a book, actually Bridget's sister came in and like, co-hosted that episode <laughs> so that I wouldn't have to read the book. Oh, <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, I live in audio. I love audio. Um, I produced audiobooks. Um, and I'm curious to know more about uh, how your audiobooks are um, getting made. What do you, do you have a say in the narrator? Um, like how much say do you have? Is it kind of like the book covers where they're like, hey, this is you get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> like, how do you feel about how the audiobooks came out um, in that regard? So confession time, I haven't listened to my audiobooks. Um, I, 
I find it really terrible to hear my own words read mm -hmm. back at me. Um, I have a very hard time reading to people from my books. That's hard enough. But actually hearing somebody else read it out loud is, is physically uncomfortable for me. So I can't do it. But I, I heard that a lot of people um, really enjoyed the narrator. Um, and I did have a say in, 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 in picking her. I, had, um, I heard some, like Penguin Random House suggested uh, Elizabeth Stizicki, and uh, I heard some samples of her reading other work. And I thought she had a, a lovely accent and voice. So I um, thought I like that. And what they do is they ask me how I want certain things pronounced. Um, so, so I had a say in that. And certainly I was asked if I wanted to continue with the same um, reader for the, for the second book. And I felt it made sense to have continuity in a series. So I said, yes, let's go with her again. Um, I think, I think continuity in a series, um, just for whatever my opinion's worth is important when, uh, narrators keep changing in a mm -hmm. series. I don't know why I like it. I greatly, I just greatly dislike it. Also, like, even if the narrator is like not the greatest narrator, sometimes when the narrators change it, um, they give your, an old character that you already have a voice for, um, a different voice and, it, you're kind of like there's a disconnect that happens in a series, so I think that's a it's always a good choice when unless the first narrator was extremely terrible um, to like kind of stick with. <laughs> well, I, did, I didn't I didn't hear any I didn't really hear a majority of people say that it was terrible. So um, <laughs> I felt quite confident. I, I became an audiobook uh, producer specifically because I read a book or I listened to a book on Audible that was so terrible. Like I'm like just the audio quality alone sounded like somebody took their iPhone, like headphone recorded a voice memo of a book and then put it up on Audible. And I was like, how did this make it? Like, where was the quality control? How did this make it? So I went down this rabbit hole of figuring out how books get on Audible and that sort of thing. And I was like, Oh, I can do this and way better. Cause like I produce music. So wow. like, I was like, I have all the equipment for this. Let's let's uh, let's figure this out. And then uh, it was just like a rabbit hole from there. But uh, so there's definitely been some like narrators that I was just like, oh, this is not good. But then if you have a great narrator, it makes the book sing like insanely crazy. Like there's all there's um, a few narrators in romance that keep coming up um, over and over again. There's one narrator, Christian something who comes up in dark romances all the time. He has a great voice for dark romance. Um, and uh, Stephen Fry, who does Harry Potter, but he's also like part of the, uh, what's the British, um, like ho the Holy Grail, Monty Python, the quest for the Holy Grail. He's an actor in that. Um, he does Harry Potter's. And yeah, I mean, Stephen Fry is like a British icon. He's amazing. Yeah. He's, he's so, just so good. He's so good. His voice is butter. Yeah. I'm like, Stephen, read me oh. anything. Read me anything. <laughs> yeah, I, would read, I would listen to him. I would actually listen to him reading the phone book. And I'm not an audit. How do you say? I'm not an uh, auditory, like auditory a, person. Yeah, I have a very hard time listening to things and then retain. Well, not even. Well, I wouldn't say retaining information, but I just don't see anything when I hear something. You know, um, and and when I read, it's completely different. Like I read a line, and I I have an image in my head, and I'm I'm starting to to go into it. I'm starting to go into it. And I hadn't understood for a long time that it's not the same for everyone. I didn't realize there were different types of processing information and, you know, yeah. building worlds in your head. So, 
but Stephen Fry, I'd listen to him definitely. Watch him too; he's hilarious. Yeah. Are you are you a paperback, hardback, or e-reader, or just anything you can get your hands on? Um, I like paperbacks and e-reader. I think hardcover is great to look at, but they're not very comfortable for carrying around and also take up a lot of space. So I'd go with um, mass market or a trade paperback. And if you read romance, you probably read it a lot. So getting it for an e-reader is also very much like saving, <laughs> saving shelf space. <laughs> so yeah, it's a mix. Yeah, I finally broke down when we started the podcast. My husband's been trying to get me uh, to buy an e-reader since we met six years ago. He's been like, let me just buy you one for your birthday. But I love, I just love the like physical feeling of holding the book open, knowing exactly how much is left because I can feel the pages, like the smell of it. There's just something about it that, like you said, like I immediately am like in that world and I see yeah. it all happening. And I don't quite get that same love of it when I'm doing the e-reader. Um, but I did break down and I have consumed, especially during COVID, the libraries in LA were closed for months. The bookstores were all closed. So like I've read an enormous amount of uh, eBooks this year, but, and for vacations and stuff when you're, you know, I bring like eight hardcovers or eight paperbacks <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing? Just buy an e-reader. Yeah. And what you said about, you know, exactly how much is left. I, I think that's really important because sometimes you're reading a story on a Kindle and you're like, awesome, I've got 20% left. And then it's over. And it's like, it came out of nowhere because those 20% were actually like 15% of that was something else going on in the Kindle and, and just completely different, you know, uh, yep. You know, uh, yeah. how do you say it? notes from the author or an excerpt from another book that just happened to me the other day? I was so excited, I was like, Ooh, 20% left, like we must have another sex scene, there must be a really romantic gesture, and it ended 10 pages later, and I was devastated. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. How dare you? Yeah, <laughs> let down on the last meter. <laughs> I love how it's like those last pages are like the hope. Like that they are like a physical representation of hope. <laughs> and of just like of um when a book is like not like, got, got to where know. you need it to be, and you're yeah. like, oh, I have this much left of hope. <laughs> I also do it based on like, should I finish this book before I go to sleep or should or should I stay away? You know, and it's like I, if I see a paperback and I look at it, I'm like, that's way too much to read before I go to sleep. But for some reason on the Kindle, I'm like 30%. I could I could read that before sleep. <laughs> it's like two and a half hours. Like, okay. <laughs> I I'm curious also to know. So like uh Bridget and I work um before we did this podcast, majority in um uh film and visuals um and a lot of post-production as well. Um and we find that the editing process is where you actually find the story you can shoot whatever you're going to shoot but when you sit down for editing that's where the real magic comes um when you are uh, creating a thing so we're curious to know like um what are you finding in your in the editing process um versus like your first draft or your first or second draft um of your books <clears throat> okay so i i have to say that my writing process is um well, first of all, I'm a plotter. I'm a pretty hardcore plotter. So I don't really write myself into dead ends and I don't explore much on the page. <laughs> I just, 
I just um, have the challenge of putting what's in my head onto the page. That's my main challenge because I keep building it all in my head and then um, not writing it, which isn't great because obviously it needs to be written. <laughs> and stuff happens when I write as well. But what I'm trying to say is I don't have a lot of, like not a lot lands on the cutting floor. Is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. like, okay. The cutting room floor. So, yeah. Exactly. So um, my first draft reads probably very differently from, um, let's say, a Mad Panther's first draft. So uh, I take a really, really, really long time to write a first draft, but it probably skips a couple of stages. So under the line, the time that goes into the book is probably the same as for, for a Panther. Um, but it means that my books so far come back with very few edits every time. And um, I think what, what I can do is... So for me, the magic for the editing comes in that I haven't seen the book for four weeks, you know? And then it comes back and I have a fresh eye. So I can see better where to sharpen, you know, something, where to add a scene to really make it pop and also uh, where to... <laughs> to maybe cut bits that are redundant and I'm not sick of it anymore and that really helps because I look at it with a new loving eye and to have maybe some ideas in, in the meantime but when I'm writing I never take a break from the manuscript and you can become really uh or I can become really caught up in it and not like a single thing about it anymore or <laughs> you know, not, not even see where it should go so, so for me the biggest I think the biggest boon when it comes back is I'm looking at it with fresh eyes I have corroborated with my editor where I feel uncertain. Um, she maybe has two or three ideas um, and then we discuss those. And so it definitely becomes a lot better after editing. But so far, as it hasn't happened to me that I send off a draft and it comes back and it, it becomes a completely different or substantially altered thing afterwards. Yeah. Nice. We call that in music... Um... Uh, demoitis when you it's that when you dangerous. make <laughs> demoitis is when you make a demo of a song uh so you write you write a song it's your first draft of of the song you might it just might be scratch vocals so you can get the idea down and then you listen to it over and over and over and over again because you're trying to get ideas and then when you re when you re-record it you're like i don't like this re-record because you're so like locked into the sound of the demo um yeah. so generally if you put the song down like for a month or or two months or whatever you're you know someone may need you come back you're like oh this demo is terrible <laughs> what, was I, what was i thinking this is not um so you're not like uh you're not attached to that that thing anymore and you can like objectively look at it and make the changes you need to make so that's cool yeah, absolutely yeah. yes and I'm, I'm really lucky with my editor in that i feel like we have um i feel like she really gets my characters so um, we, um, we haven't really had any, you know, sometimes I hear from, from authors who are really distressed because they need to rewrite a book or something. And I mean, it might happen to me too, if I keep writing, you know, but so far I felt like we've always worked together rather than against each other in any way. And that's super helpful. Yeah. Nice. So like, okay. So as an introvert, uh, mm -hmm. one introvert to another, <laughs> um, and definitely as somebody from what you're you're talking about, I definitely get the sense that you have energy dollars, right? Which is like 
you can only spend so much energy before you're like, I need to go back to my cave and be Mm -hmm. away from people. Um, So when you are uh, writing, right now you're writing, but what is it like to be um, writing a book and then also having to promote it? Like, and you got to be social, you got to do panels, you know, you have to do podcast interviews, you got, you know, uh, how, how is that working for you? Just like in a general sense? Well, chatting to you now is really lovely because, you know, it's the two of you and um, it's really interesting. And um, so so that's really nice. But um, certainly the whole promotion thing is um, doesn't come very naturally. Mm. Um, I didn't really have social media before I started writing. And um, then everyone told me, if you want to be an author and, you know, have books out in the States, you need to be on Twitter and on Instagram, you need an author Facebook page and, oh, have you thought about Pinterest? And then there's BookBub and I was like, <laughs> oh, great. Um, so when am I going to write books? And uh, it's, I think, something a lot of authors struggle with. So I I left Twitter like a month or something ago because COVID just made me doom scroll and I had to write a bonus wedding chapter that I promised my readers for my newsletter and I wasn't making any headway on that wedding chapter at all. I wasn't, I wasn't really writing on my fourth book, which is Katrina's story. Um, I was just getting distracted. So I thought, this can't be, you know, this can't be right. Um, you know, you can't have these type of activities interfere with the actual art. So I think for my own creativity, it's better if, I, if I'm not out there too much um and i'm not absorbing all these things that are going on in the world and um yeah also i think it shortens my attention span when there's so much happening um and when you write or when i write i really need to think long thoughts does that make sense yes (laughs) oh girl yes (laughs) we we think we think the same when we started everyone was like oh your podcast has to have facebook and instagram and twitter and all these other things and i was like shani i can't commit to running all of those different things and so we were like we're only going to do instagram we have twitter it's linked to our instagram so all of our instagrams go to twitter i very occasionally log into twitter and we'll like reply to people but like once a week i'm very not committed to twitter and Facebook, all of our posts automatically go there. But I only log on to Facebook if someone has written us a note. I don't go. Because like you said, it's like, there's, first of all, it's too much to keep up with. <laughs> and Twitter, especially for me, like Facebook or Instagram, I scroll through because I comment on a lot of people's photos and interact with a lot of people. But it's easier for me to like stop. I feel like Twitter, like I could all of a sudden lose two hours because there's so like the rabbit holes are so deep and like the scan, the scandals and romance landia that you see on Twitter, people get so irate about things and some of them they should rightly. So I'm not saying I'm not against them getting upset. I'm just saying for me personally, like I can't, I can't manage <laughs> all of the other creative things that we're pushing forward and engage in that all the time. Yeah, that's, that's, for me, it's like, for, during quarantine, when it first started, I downloaded TikTok like everybody else did. Um, and uh, also, all like, everyone in my family got Animal Crossing, which is like a video game, but you can play with each other. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can connect right. through the internet. So my whole family had a Discord chat, and we would play together and that sort of thing. Um, the problem I had with it is that Like, so, you know, I guess the way I process is a part of ADHD for women. And 
Um, and so all these little things create dopamine like uh, yeah. drops, you know? So, so I hear I'm getting like excited about, about TikTok, every new video. And then mm-hmm. next thing I know it's the morning and I've spent the entire night on TikTok. I deleted it from my phone because I said, this isn't intense. Like I can't just sit here and spend all my night scrolling and not, never know where the time went. Like, I'm in, I'm in a hyper focus and same thing with animal crossing. I would play it. And to the point where I'd wake up with anxiety going, Oh, I have to go fix my Island. And then I remember one day going, if something that's supposed to be fun is giving you anxiety about getting something done, you have to put it down. And I just like cold Turkey, put it down. I was like, I'm not, I'm not playing this. I'm not doing this. And then I'm so excited to talk to you because I rarely, I feel like get to talk to someone whose brain is uh, similar to mine operates in that idea of like the long thought you, you allowing yourself to just get lost in a long series of thoughts. And if anybody ever saw where the thought started and where it ended, it would look like some crazy, (laughs) some crazy (laughs) wonderland. Um, but those long thoughts are where the creativity comes out. And when I put down Animal Crossing and when I put down TikTok, I shot two music videos, full, full cuts of music videos, and did was so uh, was able to let um, my thoughts and emotions over what I was going through and what I was processing really uh, manifest in a creative way um, without kind of blocking it with these short bursts of dopamine. Um, and so, uh, it's, so I understand what you, what you mean in terms of just like, st- like getting off of social media and not being a part of it. Luckily I have Bridget because Bridget, she <laughs> understands my crazy brain <laughs> and she helps me. She reminds me sometimes she's like, Shani, we're doing this thing. And uh, like, this is what's happening. I'm like, Oh, okay. You know? And so I feel less bad. Sometimes you feel bad about the way your brain works because like, I, I think that sometimes um, people don't un- just un- understand that you can get lost for hours in a thought or you can be sitting in a group of people and be in a faraway land that, you know, and somebody's like, you know, and you're like, uh, what, <laughs> like, what were we talking about? I'm sorry. And I've just gotten to the habit of saying, Hey, I wasn't paying attention. Can you repeat that? I just say that all the time now because nine times out of 10, I'm in a faraway land building castles and some something else or processing something uh, entirely different. Um, so I say that all to say, like, I definitely understand <laughs> this idea of getting lost in social media or that noise, like being something that uh, drowns out, like your real, the real root of your thoughts. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good image actually saying it drowns out like the root of, of one's thoughts. And that's at the end of the day, you know, I think it totally has its value, um, the social media. And for example, I really like being on Instagram and chatting with readers there and seeing their pictures or, or hearing from them. You know, don't get me wrong. I really love um, interacting with readers. It's just at the end of the day, uh, you have music to do and I have books to write. And that, that should really be the the heart, the heart of what we do, I would think. And um, if in times like COVID, where every distraction is welcome, it just becomes unmanageable, then something's got to give and it can't be the books. And I don't, I wouldn't feel too bad about it because do you remember when Facebook still had this little um, inbox where you get this little red flag with like a, like a little speech bubble with a one or two in it, if you get a message. So I think, I think they did some studies um, about the effect of seeing this red little flag pop on, on your social media on Facebook. And they figured out it had the same level of addictiveness as doing cocaine and that would kind of dovetail quite nicely with the dopamine burst because it's yeah. also what kind of 
this does. So it is a serious thing and we shouldn't feel too bad to like for protecting our creativity, I think. I think it's true because I because I definitely know that um, all a lot of these social media platforms have done this study, have shown that it is an addicting behavior, and then have ramped it up to make sure that you stay addicted to their platform. So <laughs> they have. That's why I think it's, I want to say Twitter or somebody was talking about removing the like button on um, on posts so that to to combat that you know so they know what it does uh, you know and. Um, so some of them are for it, some are not. <laughs> but they definitely, uh, I, I like to say, like, uh, they're not adding to my paycheck, so I don't want to add to theirs. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I have a question. So this is a little bit tricky, trickier in historicals, but um, so there's been a whole, whole lot of talk about uh, diversity of characters. Um this these last couple of years in romance um there have been some scandals <laughs> there have been some resignations <laughs> um and uh i don't know how how versed you are in in what's going on in romance in the u.s and that sort of thing but um we're always interested every season we try to add um a difference of not only race but sexual pairings um, number of pairings in a book, um, just really diversify our options. Um, and so I'm, we're curious in general, um, how, if you think about that in romance, um, especially when it comes to, um, ethnicity or race of your characters, what kind of research you do on your characters, if they're coming from, well, obviously they're, I think they are coming from a background different than yours. Um, and, uh, just how much, what kind of thought do you put into that in general? Well, I think that's um, that's something that historicals can, you know, um, include as much diversity as contemporary romance novels. You just have to, be, because, you know, history is not like a, a monolithic thing, even though it's usually told, at least British history is usually told from like the perspective of white, um, wealthy people. And incidentally, the suffragist movement in Britain really differs from the suffrage movement in the US at one point, and that is that until the Edwardian era, um, the British suffrage movement was really led by very wealthy or middle-class women and was also quite white. And in America, I think that was different. I don't know too much about it, but I do know that there was a lot of whitewashing going on. So there's these two differences, I think, between the suffrage movement. And that makes it, for me, made it a bit tricky to include like a, um, a suffragist who would also be up at Oxford, who's like uh, a lady of color. Firstly, because if she's like a main character in my squad, I wouldn't feel entitled to tell her story, you know what I mean? And she'd inevitably end up having her own book. Um, but in my third book now, I have a, <laughs> I have a, a character who's um, biracial and she certainly becomes interested in the suffrage movement. So you have to, you have to look at history um, from different angles and where the diversity came in. And it's certainly a challenge to do because you want to get it right. And if you get sensitivity readers, you know, um, which I do, you mustn't, so what, I, what I'm seeing is you can't just look at the sensitivity reader having something to do with the background of the characters that they're looking at. They also need to be well-versed in romance re reading because there's, I think, different expectations maybe in romance readership than... Uh, regular 
readership in some ways. So that's something that I'd keep in mind. I find it a bit easier with sexual diversity. For example, Tristan, the hero of my second book, is bisexual. And that just really suited his character because he comes, like, he's inspired from the whole decadent movement and the aesthetics movement. And that was led by Oscar Wilde, who was gay. And um, quite a few artists in the movement there were um, upper-class men who were able, because they were upper-class men, to, um, to get away with that in the Victorian era when you couldn't live that openly, you know? So... Because it suited Tristan's character, it came very naturally to him. But um, when <laughs> I don't know, it was like bisexual. Tell me more. <laughs> I haven't well, read the second one, so I was like, like, it's not like something that I explore in depth and broke because it's not like something that is um, like that's not his journey in that book. He's always <laughs> loved, like he's always loved, loved one person, and that's I'm spoiling here now. But he's always loved Lucy, so. So I think he knew that and he was just very at ease with how he was also because he moved in these artistic circles. So it wasn't something where he felt like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Or where I felt like the need to, um, to make it a, a, a big issue on the page for him. Cause for him, it's yeah. just not an issue, you know? Yeah. Um, so. Nice. I have a, what do you, is there a question? Cause now you've done a lot of interviews for your first book and now your second book. Is there something that you wish interviewers were asking you about your books or? Um, no, not really. I'm always, I'm always happy to chat and I hope I'm not getting asked things about <laughs> what's your favorite book or <laughs> what's your favorite TV series? Cause I find it too hard to decide. Um, but um, um, well, I think I think I think something that I hope readers take away is from my books that it's basically it's always about women negotiating between you know being in love and finding or keeping their independence, which is quite a modern thing. But I trust that most readers get that when they read it. So. I don't think I have to explain it. Um, no, can't think of anything. You know what I, I find interesting when you, um, as you're talking, is that I think sometimes the education that we were given as women, especially if you were you grew up in a place where a lot of education was restricted or was a, um, like for me specifically, like a biblical-based um you know, education on a lot of things about what a woman's job is and what she's supposed to do and, and that sort of thing. Um, you have this idea that in the past, women were doing the things that you were taught to do, you know? And the more that I have sat down with my mom and talked to her about her mom and talked to her about her grandmother, the more I find out that these, that like the, the line of women I come from, like didn't give any fucks. <laughs> like they were doing like I had I found out that I had like my great grandmother divorced my grandfather. I didn't know this because um, nobody talks about it. Divorced him. And then she was going around town doing whatever she wanted to. And she would come and have like dinner with him every Saturday. And he would take care of her every Saturday and whatever. And my mom expressed like how much he loved her. Like he would take care of her. He would like treat her like a queen and do all this stuff for her every Saturday. And then she'd be off and she'd do whatever she wanted to do, you know? And like the more like the stories that come out, 
you know, that nobody likes to talk about. Um, like, like I found out that my, my like grandfather was abusive, right. To my grandmother. And one day he got drunk and he passed out and she dragged him outside into the snow and left him out there all night. And that was the last day that he ever raised a hand to her ever. Uh, <laughs> and like, but there's just like these moments that I'm finding out about that, like, um, like that just make me feel like, you know, that, that I've been gaslit in a way where, uh, you know, I'm told like, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. And this is how they did it. And your grandmother was so pious and you only have one view of your grandmother from when you're a little kid. And she was older then and she was chiller then. And she was, you know, whatever. Um, but that wasn't the case at all. Like they were fighting <laughs> all sorts of battles. Yeah. Um, go ahead. You know, I, I think, I think what you're saying is super interesting because that links back to what I was trying to formulate earlier, that history is not a monolith. It's like, you know, on the surface, it might look what one, like one thing, but you always find the interesting thing when you look at individual stories where individuals were always doing things differently. And then you eventually you see so many women and also men doing things differently from the norm that you begin to wonder, so who were these masses or who were the people who kept maintaining the status quo? Because on an individual level, so many people can be like devious and do things their own way and, you know, carve out a space where they just pushed something forward as individuals. So um, I think it's totally worth looking at um, individuals in history and then telling their story because then you get a fuller picture of those times that we very often think was like the one thing <laughs> or things were just like this back then. Also, like in the very beginning when you said in history historical romance novels you can get away with um you know like arrogant male behavior more often and then live lift out that fantasy actually during my research i researched suffragist couples and i found that the men in these relationships even though this was 1850 were very accommodating gentle men who had a huge issue with the marriage laws at the time because it gave them power over their wives you know the most prominent one probably being john stuart mill who was a british philosopher and he made a public declaration against marriage laws on the day he married his, his, um, his love, um, saying, I can't change the laws, but I hate them and I want to put on record that I'm not going to use these stupid powers. And so, so even in historical novels, you'd find lots of historically accurate, gentle supportive men um, of the women that they married, you know. So it's really a, a question of pulling out the microscope, I think, and looking at those individual stories and then telling them and that gives you a much more accurate picture. On the other hand, I wouldn't want to downplay the structural injustice that women have experienced, you know, just because as individuals we can be strong and go against the grain and not live up to these standards. I think it's still important to acknowledge that structurally or maybe systemic is a better word, we have been at a disadvantage, um, certainly in the Victorian era, like other minorities, you know, women queer people um, have been at a systemic disadvantage, no matter how um, you know, uh, feisty they were as individuals or how they found spaces to live how they wanted to, you could still get really walloped by the law or by social you know, um, mores. And I think it's interesting to keep that in, in perspective too. <laughs> Especially I try, I try that when I write historicals, tell individual stories where the individual can plausibly diverge from that stereotype that we know on the one hand, but also have them run into those rules that existed and made life difficult for them. 
because that's how these rules got changed over time by these individuals who were going up against them, you know? But I, I wouldn't want to take away from their bravery by denying that those obstacles existed. Yeah, and I like that a lot of the obstacles between the couples in books one and two are sort of the systemic obstacle. Because a lot of times in romance, they'll be like, the main characters are like, I'm like, well, they really shouldn't get married because there's something fundamentally in this relationship that's a problem. And I'm always happy when it's almost more like outside influences or miscommunication is the problem, not so much like incompatibility and then it miraculously gets solved. Uh, (laughs) And speaking of your books, everyone, Evie is being generous enough to do a giveaway to one of you guys of a rogue of one's own. So if you go to the website, romance at a glance forward slash Evie dash Dunmore, you can check it out and I will have a link for you to enter the giveaway and it will be a very exciting time for one of our dear listeners. So thank you so much, Evie. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute blast. Absolutely. I get very excited about these. (laughs) I am very, very, very excited that we got to talk to you today. Um, And uh, I look forward to like reading everything that you publish. And it's, it's cool too, like just FYI, because I mean, we just started our podcast. We just celebrated our one year anniversary. And, Mm -hmm. and so uh, getting, I mean, because you are a newer author in general, we get to follow you like as we grow as podcasters and as we like, we get to follow your journey from the beginning. It's, you know, Julia Quinn has been doing this for a very, very long time, you know? Um, So we don't get to see her growth in it, in the process of anything. So it's actually an exciting um, thing for me to feel like, Oh, man, I can grow with an author. Um, And that's, I think the beauty of, of all of this. So it's nice. So thank you so much. Mary, thank you for having me. And hopefully there will be growth. So There will be growth. There will be. There's too much depth in you. You've been getting all these people saying book two, including me, is better than book one. So there's already growth. You're already better. (laughs) I think it's fun too. You know, we try to do a a variety. You know, as Shani said, we try to capture a variety in each season. So established authors, newer authors, independent authors, authors of color, uh, you know, queer authors, we try to go through and same with all of our characters as well. So it's fun. You know, speaking of Julia Quinn, we're interviewing her in a couple of weeks, but our questions will be different just because like, you know, she's been publishing for 20 some years now. We don't need to ask how she got her first book published. Like, cause you know, it's going to be more about her, you know, See, catalog. Yeah. Her, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really been nice to, I'm happy that you were so candid with us. We appreciate that. No, totally. And can I ask you a question? Like, how did you find out that you both love romance novels and then decided, let's do something with that? I think that's fascinating because I understand you met at work or... um... Oh my God, I will... (laughs) I'm sure we'll trade off telling you about. So Shawnee is a big fan of babies. And I, when we met, I was pregnant with my first kid and I was very pregnant. I was like eight months pregnant, eating Chick-fil-A and a milkshake at this meeting I went to to write a, uh, I got invited by a mutual friend of ours to help write a spec for her YouTube channel. So basically writing a spec script for this, um, fellowship thing. 
And it was just one of those moments where you look across the room, you connect eyes with someone and you're like, yeah. oh, we're going to be best friends. Like it was like, <laughs> Bridget and I have like a, pra- you ever like, we have a practical brain, she and I. And so there was like, I think four of us in the room, we're all friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I had just met Bridget that day. That was the first day I'd ever met her. Um, and so they were talking about stuff and their ideas and that. And I think Bridget and I kept saying some practical, maybe some like some practical issues or something. And there was a point in time where I just looked at her. She looked at me and just like, you just like knew you're like, (laughs) or whatever. And I was a postpartum. I used to be a postpartum doula. So basically when moms brought home their baby, I teach them the kind of what the process of what bringing home baby means and that sort of thing. Um, And so that's how Bridget and I initially met. And I think we, I was hanging out at her house one day and she had, I think it was a black dagger brotherhood. Well, uh, wait, before we get oh, to there, sorry. let's tell her about how you didn't even see my first kid for the first six months. Cause you had like the bronchitis and flu that wouldn't go away. So every week yeah. she was like, still sick, still can't come over. I would, I would sick, be like, I promise I, I, I promise I want to come home with your baby, but I'm still sick. And I'm not going to be that asshole brings like an illness over your house with your new baby. Uh, it turned out that year was like, everybody kept getting a never ending flu. Like oh, yeah. that just kept reoccurring, reoccurring. And I thought it was just me and I was a douche. And then it turns out everybody had this like thing. So I felt a little bit better about that. But I kept saying like, I'm coming. I swear I'm coming. So her baby was like six months old before like I actually met her um, or whatnot, which I, the second baby I've been there for, I was there from the beginning and, and I was one. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then COVID yeah. hit and I missed, I missed like the, the, the latter half of Last the six months. months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. So she came over and she was just holding the baby for me all afternoon while I was like, you know, showering and cooking and all those wonderful things that people do while you like someone else hold your baby so you can like take care of yourself. And we were just having lunch and chatting. And I think she said something like, what are you reading or something? I don't remember. Someone, one of us brought up books and I was like, oh, I'm reading this romance novel, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, she was trying to be all cool. I like romance novels too. Like, which ones do you read? And I was like, oh, and so I listed like my favorite 10 authors because I am unashamed. I was like, these are my favorite ones. This is what I like to read. I was like, I like this one and this one. And she's like, oh my God, I love that one too. And then we spent the next like three and a half hours talking about romance novels. And uh, that night, Shawnee called me and we like typically text, I would say, but Shawnee called me and I was like, Hey, what's up? And she's like, so don't say anything yet, but I think that we should start a romance novel podcast. And here are the following reasons. And I was like, Oh, that sounds great. Let's do it. And she was like, no, no, no. I have a 10 point plan. Bridget, listen to my argument. <laughs> I had, I had been 10 points of how I could convince her to like do a romance podcast. And right off the bat, she was like, I'm in, let's do it. I was like, no, no, I have 10 points. I took time to write these. I'm going <laughs> to tell you these 10 points. Yeah. So she, then she convinced me again with her 10 points. And I was like, I'm still in. Come over tomorrow. And let's figure it out. You know, and then, and then uh, yeah. we went to uh, um, like uh, a thing at YouTube space where they had like Anna Ferris's producer come and give a talk with like three other panelists and that sort of thing. And um, afterwards, he, you know, he was just standing around and we went up to talk to him and he was like, okay, tell us what your podcast idea is or whatever. Um, And Bridget at the time was going to do like a movie podcast or, um, and I was like, okay, I want to do the romance podcast thing. And so he, we, so we told him that and then he looked at, (laughs) he looked at me, he looked at Bridget and me, he's like, do that, do the romance, do that. And so we were like, all right, well, that seals the deal. Yeah. So then at that point, we just kind of threw ourselves into research. We researched for uh, eight months, I think, before we put out our first podcast. Like, to see from- where you fit with 
your um, take or well, just yeah. to also also to like listen to some other people. But the big thing was like practicing and then deciding like what things we cared about. Because, like, mm-hmm. there's so much you could talk about. You could talk about the writing style. Like, you could spend a whole podcast only talking about writing style. Exactly. You could spend a whole podcast only. But we wanted to, like, we knew we wanted to cover, you know, like, some different. And then just kind of practicing. Like, we did a couple where we we didn't actually use our first recording. We used that as, like, okay, and then we listened back. Okay, here's the things that felt good. And just kind of getting getting used to our dynamic and who was going to lead, like, who's going to, because there always has to be one person who, like, leads the conversation and keeps it moving, because we both tend to tangentially <laughs> wander we, through life. We went on so many tangents. <laughs> with, so, like, our podcast in general was about romance novels, but what it's really become over time is relating romance novels to real-life situations and relationships. Like, and then what can happen in a romance novel, and if that same thing happens in real life, what that uh, also what did we think about that and what it looks like um, or whatnot? And that just happened naturally as like, we just go on tangents and that we, I cut out so many tangents from the podcast that like, because it makes a podcast sometimes two hours or, or just way, uh, way too long. And then because Bridget and I both come from a production background, we knew that we had to have X amount of episodes in the can before we even put out the first one, because we didn't want to be just like, um, you know, scrambling to get episodes and that sort of thing. But I honestly couldn't ask for a better partner because both of us understood production. We both do two totally separate things. Like, so I do the editing of the podcast um, and Bridget does more of like more of the writing stuff that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And generally both of us are pretty easygoing in terms of our ideas. So it's like, if I have an idea, I throw it at Bridget, she'll refine it and be like, okay, let's do this or vice versa. Um, we don't fight for ideas we don't care about. We don't, <laughs> nothing's really like, I or, don't even, we don't even fight for ideas we care about because yeah. honestly, like, so the, to throw it back at Johnny, the best thing is that there's no like competition. A lot of times in a pairing, even a really healthy pairing, there's a natural, you know, like you're like, no, but I like what I said, or I really like that idea. And I feel like both of us, like since the beginning, we talked about it ahead of time. Like this has to be very low stress. Like this can't be something where we feel obligated. This has to just be like the funnest thing of our week. And so if someone's like, I don't like that book, we're not going to review it. Or like, oh, I'm not jazzed about that description we don't even have to know the author which is oh that description doesn't sound good okay cool chopping block because there are a million books to read there's a million authors there's so much stuff to talk about that we like the only thing we make sure of is that we have diversity within each season and that each season is a complete sort of idea um and that's it everything else is on the table everything else is like (laughs) Just like, she'll be like, I, I'm not feeling that. And I'm like, okay, cool. Let's move on. Or I'll be like, I don't know about that one, Shani. And she's like, all right, let's move. Like, let's not do it then. So <laughs> it's great. Yeah. That's awesome. No, that, yeah. I love to hear that. Because I guess one, one of the few things that I really miss about my actual job is working with awesome women and getting stuff done together. Because writing is so solitary. And, um, you know, I have an awesome agent and an awesome editor who are women. But it's not the same as you like sitting together once a week day in and day out doing stuff and having an like a tangible output and just yeah so awesome yeah we went before covid shawnee was at my house three or four times a week working and playing with my baby and 
then COVID happened and we haven't seen each other since uh, the end of February and she just got back to LA. So we're hoping her COVID test will be negative so that she could come see us next week. And awesome. which will be uh, the most exciting. I agree with I- you though, because that's the one nice thing about this too, is that I work a solitary. So I work from home. I'm a consultant and writer at my house by myself. I have Google chats with clients and that's it. And Shawnee is a music producer and video creator. So she's at her house by herself unless she's like at an event or on set. And so it's nice to have like a mutual project where we can get together. And like, even if we're just sitting next to each other, we're working on separate things, at least for like together. Well, so it's there, there's this one element that I've, that I have like kind of pinpointed, right? Because in music production, I work with almost all men, right? Um, and uh, generally on sets now I work with mostly women hmm. and I realized that a lot of times when I'm working with men, um, I hit walls, right? I'm like, Oh, I have this idea da, 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 and it hits a wall. And usually when I feel like when I'm working with women, if I have an idea, I'm like, how about we try this thing? Most of the time women will be like, let's try it. See what happens. What's the worst, like, what's the worst that can happen? Or like, let's like, so there's, there's this kind of openness to adventure sometimes that I find from women that I don't necessarily, and, and I'm speaking in generalities, but I mm-hmm. much more often hit a wall when I'm working with men than I do with women. There's just a different type of easeability that like, I can't really quantify. And so I miss, I love that I get to work with Bridget because it's like, I get to speak my native language, I feel like, and it be heard and... <laughs> And embraced uh, sometimes that I don't find um, in other avenues. I've had to fight much harder in music production um, and on sets. I've had it be. Uh, I've had. I've been on sets where my brother has um, been with me, and he's like a six foot two tall uh, chocolate with a big afro man. And I've had people walk in and ask him for like the instructions of the day, and he him be like, "This is not my set." I like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's like awkward. <laughs> So, so, uh, you know, I do find, uh, very much so that I'm, I enjoy this and I'm very grateful for this. And sometimes I, I stop and try to take a moment, like take a beat and take a snapshot because it's like, sometimes I feel like, uh, on the come up, you don't, you're just grinding. You're like, I wish, I wish, uh, I can't wait till we get to be big. I can't wait till we get to do this. I can't get, wait till we have this many viewers or this many listeners or this many, whatever. Um, but like, we don't get the days back. I feel like where. Um, you know, we just get to be like regular, you know? It's just a different energy, isn't it? I think. Yeah. It's just, yeah. just a different energy, sort of energy when you walk into a room. Because in automotive and consulting, it's usually 95% men. And in romance writing, it's the other way around. It's 95% women. And there's just a difference in, yeah, as you say. Like we have, a, I'd say, we, at least I'm wearing a different face for each occasion. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Especially as a consultant, I'm sure you feel the same way where you have to be very, like, um, like firm. Like, this is my opinion. This is what you should do because you're paying me for my opinion. And they're like, well, what about this? And you're like, no, your opinion is wrong. I have the facts. This is what you're doing, you know? And you have to be much, or at least I find I have to be much more, uh, uh, yeah. I don't but, know. But not, you know, but not not too ball busting because that becomes uncomfortable. No, no. So you have no, to no, be no, no. firm in a schoolmistress kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I, I know exactly what you mean. That that little teetering line of, uh, of you know, don't don't uh, don't, especially if you come from like backgrounds where there's a lot of machismo, a lot of um, uh, you know, ego. Uh, you're like trying to stroke the ego, but also get what you need done. And that kind of, um, I was I I've been talking about this just with the women in my family for the last I don't know month that we went on that I was on vacation. Um, that it is exhausting to manage people, right? And when you go to work and you manage people, you're fine. You come home and you need to rest. But when you're managing your husband or your your partner or everybody's egos, like how do you have time and energy for, you know, like you only have so many fucks to give and so many energy dollars. <laughs> the fact, the, the idea of having to manage your partner to me, and as I watched like all these family members manage their partners i was like dear god that this is atrocious like this is i could do a whole nother podcast so i'm gonna leave it right there but <laughs> definitely i definitely know exactly what you're talking about because i extensively just kind of went through a whole thought thread on that topic entirely um but uh but yeah this oh man this is very very this is very exciting <laughs> yeah. thank you again so much yeah, thank you it's been a blast Thanks for hanging in with us, romance readers. Head over to Instagram to continue chatting with us. We're super friendly. We want to cackle with you. We want to know what your favorite sex scene was. And we need more book recommendations. If you want to read along with us, go to our website, romanceataglance.com, to see what we're reading next. And we'll see you next podcast.